You guys ready for church? Come on. It's already going, but would you just turn to someone and welcome them to church, say hi. I know we've already done this, but just give them another high five. You can never have too many high fives in church. Oh, thank you, Brian. I appreciate that. Awesome. Well, good morning, church. We doing good? Has anyone had to scrape their windshield yet? Oh, man. <laughs> it's that time of year. You know what, though? I will say this. Um, we, are, we are very blessed. Our, our lead pastors are on the West Coast right now. They're preaching at a conference. And uh, we're very blessed uh, when we consider all of our ministry friends and people that we know all across Canada that it may be fall here and it may be getting cold, but it's not Alberta. <laughs> And we don't have any snow yet. We had some friends that had to cancel their service because of snow a week ago. All right. So anytime that you're like, oh, I just hate fall. Thank you, Lord, for the blessing of fall in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. All right. Turn with me if you got a Bible to the book of Hebrews. We're going to go there together this morning. We're going to get started. Uh, if you've been around uh, church for the past little while, we have been preaching through this series called Jesus Town. And the idea of Jesus Town is we're looking at what it means and what it looks like to outlive ordinary, everyday faith with Jesus at the center. Now, that's really important, and if, you, if you've missed it, I encourage you to go back, listen to some of the sermons, because here's the thing. It's often very easy to build a faith that is actually like a self-improvement program. But what we're looking at is, what does it look like to come before Jesus and say, I submit to your authority and your lordship. What you tell me to do, that's what I'm going to do. That's what, that's what it means to have Jesus at the center. Instead of building our own lives our own way, building it the way that Jesus has called us to build and asks us to build. Not just doing things the world's way, but doing things God's way. And then we also looked, if you were here uh, two weeks ago, at this idea that Jesus doesn't just tell us to do these things from up in heaven. He's not just this God that's like, get it right, guys. Do better down there but that he himself set aside his God nature, his omnipresence, omnipotence, and omniscience. That's knowing everything, can do everything, can be everywhere all at the same time. And he submitted that to his human nature so that he could be an example of the way that you and I are meant to live. And so we're going to kind of continue on that theme a little bit this morning. Uh, we're going to be looking here in the book of Hebrews. Let's read together uh, Hebrews chapter 10. We're going, to, we're going to be reading verse 24. Now, this letter is an interesting one. This is a letter uh, in the New Testament that would have been sent to churches, and they would have read it out loud in their gatherings and meetings in order to encourage each other in their faith in order to keep going. Now, we don't know a, a ton about the book of Hebrews. We actually don't even know who, what city it was written to. But what we do know is that it was an audience that clearly had a lot of knowledge of the Jewish scriptures, particularly the first five books of the law. So it's probably a Jewish audience that's, that's reading this who have followed Jesus. They're Jewish Christians. And not only that, they're going through a rough time. They're getting persecuted for their faith. In fact, wherever this letter is, is being sent to, it's gotten bad enough that the author of this letter has heard that people are walking away from their faith. They're like, this is, this is too hard. This is too much. Man, when it was all just about going to heaven and having eternal life and just being able to live the abundant life, that was great. But like getting thrown to lions? Getting persecuted for my faith? People aren't coming into my shop anymore because of what I believe about Jesus. I'm done. 
And the author of Hebrews is writing this letter to be like, don't give up. Jesus is worthy. Follow Jesus. Don't stop. Keep going. It's an encouragement. So maybe if you're in this room and you're like, man, faith is getting hard lately. Like, I, I, I wish it was the 80s and 90s where people seem to like Christians. Because, like, I'm nervous to talk about my faith. Like, I don't want to talk about it because I know what people in my job think about it. In fact, I've heard them talk about those religious whack jobs on the right, right wing. And I think they're going to think I'm like that, so I just keep it to myself. I feel like we can find some encouragement this morning in the fact that this is the letter written to people who are feeling exactly that, if not worse. So let's be encouraged this morning as we read together. Okay, verse 24 says this. We can get that up on the screen. Here we go. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. So this is in chapter 10. This is kind of like heading towards the end of the letter. There's, there's these four sections and then a wrap-up. This is the last section. And the author is saying, all right, because of everything that I've just written, let's think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. The author here is getting at this point. Guys, I know that it's hard. I know that it's difficult. Keep encouraging each other, motivating each other, and keep meeting together. This morning, if you're looking for a title, I'm calling this message Direction, Correction, and Protection. Looking at the idea of the church the practice of the church. So would you pray with me as we get into this this morning? Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you are always speaking. And so we pray that we would have ears to hear what it is that you're speaking. Open our hearts and open our minds to what it is that you want to speak to us today. Challenge us, encourage us, build us up, and help us do it. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right, quick show of hands. I just need to know like where all the people who like gardening are at. Where, where are the people you're like, oh, I just love getting down in the dirt and like putting bulbs in the ground. Uh, you're a strange breed. Uh, like I love you, but I, I hate gardening. <laughs> like can we just be honest? Like le legitimately I'm not good at it. And the thing is that I like what gardening gives me. I like the produce of gardening, okay? Like I love the idea of like, yeah, this is like organic soil that we have and like we just pull it out of our own backyard when we want to make some tomato toast. Like we just like cut a tomato. and I love that idea. I, I want that. I want I want nice cucumbers and zucchini. I want to grow my own lettuce. Um, but if we're being honest, like the, the amount of steps and work that need to go into that, I'm, I'm not about that life. So to, to clarify before I even get into my story this morning, I am not a good gardener. So for those of you that put your hand up, don't laugh at me, okay? So when we first bought our first home in uh, St. Catharines, me and my wife, it was like we had no idea what we were doing, man. We bought this house, and we were like, we got to paint. We got to renovate. It's going to be great. And I was like, hey, could you just, like, we only had one car, so I, I had to do the work because we weren't paying someone to paint. Come on. So I was like, just drop me off for, like, two or three days. I'll get all the painting done, and then I'll also start working in the basement on the renovation. Um, and so basically, I got left at this house, and I just worked all day and all night. It was awesome. And one of the mornings that I was doing this, I'm lying in bed. It's probably like seven o'clock in the morning and I hear this voice in my backyard. 
Now, we had owned this house for like five days, right? And uh, so I'm like, you're always wondering when you buy a house, who lived here before me and what were they into and is someone going to come knocking, right? So this is like my worst fears. Maybe you don't have that fear. This is my worst fear. And so I'm like, I hear a voice. I like get dressed, right? I like peek out the window and there is a man on the phone in my backyard rummaging through my shed. And I'm like, okay. We're going to go have a conversation. So I grab a crowbar, and I walk outside, right? And I'm six foot three, like I'm imposing, all right? And I walk outside, and this guy's wrapped up his conversation, and he's just grabbed something from the shed, and he's turning around, and then he looks at me, and he's like, <gasps> and he, is, he said on the phone, I don't think anyone's home. And I was like, oh, I'm getting robbed? All right, okay. I got nothing, buddy. You're in for a surprise, except a crowbar. So I like go out there and I'm like, hey, how's it going? And we have a conversation where basically what happened is that the nice little old Italian lady who lived there with this beautiful veggie patch garden, uh, they, they hadn't taken all of her gardening stuff, the kids. So it was one of, one of the kids and I was like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry for your loss. And uh, also, did you make any extra keys that you happen to have on you? Because he had two sets of keys. And I was like, mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah. And so he like gives it back and he's like, hey, can I just can I just take these trellises? And I was like, I don't even know what a trellis is. Tre- I don't know what a trellis is. No, it doesn't work. I, and I was like, buddy, whatever. Yeah, just take the trellis, but please don't come back. Right? Like, give me the extra key that you cut. And then I just walked down a Canadian tire and bought a new locked, and we never talked about it again. But the thing is this, that I really wanted to have a, this, gar- this garden, guys, was beautiful. She had fennel growing to make her own, like, sausage, like fennel sausage and garlic. And she had onions and lettuce and zucchini and cucumber and tomatoes and all that sort of stuff. So when we moved there, we were like, oh, man, we're going to have a killer garden, <laughs> right? And we thought it was going to be great. The only problem is when you suck at gardening, it turns out that it doesn't just happen for you. So the next year, we gave it a really good shot. We, like, got these little seedlings going, these little tomatoes, and we had them growing in one of those little, like, hothouse things in the window in, the, in your house. And when they finally got to the point where they needed to go outside, I, I went outside and I dug some holes in this incredibly hard weed-covered ground, right? And it was just, like, it, it was clearly not going to work very well. But I was like, I really just, if I can have one thing work, it's the tomatoes. I just want some juicy, homegrown tomatoes. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? There's just something so much better about that. And so I was like, I want that. And so I, I planted it. And then I was like, oh, I need, I know what a trellis is now. It's the tomato thing, right? So I'm like, I wonder if there's any more. And I go back to the shed, and there was one trellis, and I planted six tomato plants. So I come back, and I put the trellis around it, and like, basically, here's how it went. At the beginning, all of the plants started growing at the same pace. They all shot up. They all got leaves. They all started sprouting, and then even a few weeks later, some flowers started to grow on all these plants, and I was like, man, you don't need a trellis. This is going to be fine. Instead of just like, I figured out how much trellises cost, and I regret everything in this story. Just for the gardeners in the room, you're like, you are so cheap. Yes, thank you, I'm aware. So I I eventually, like this plant starts growing, and here's what happened a few weeks later. I start seeing this big kind of bush and these little red dots growing on the bush. Well, they're more like green, but some of them had started turning red, and I go over, and I'm like, man, that's incredible. It worked, right? And they weren't ready yet. They weren't ripe, and so I just left it. But I looked at the plants that didn't have the trellis, and those ones weren't doing so hot. 
Like they were like trying to grow along the ground and, and like the flowers that had come out, like they weren't, it wasn't really translating into fruit. It wasn't really translating into tomatoes. It was just kind of like this vine desperately trying to live. And to make matters worse, because I'm a bad gardener, weeds had started growing up around it and choking out this plant. And so what I realized in this moment is if you're going to try to plant tomatoes, go to Sobeys. Just don't bother. No, but what I realized in this moment is the trellis was actually an incredibly important thing for me to use in gardening because the tomato plant needed the support. And when it comes to our spiritual walk and our spiritual faith, we live in a world that is quite individualistic. Like maybe you've heard this. It's like it's just my personal walk with Jesus. This is my personal faith. This is my personal conviction, right? Like maybe you've, you've, you've even used this language yourself, but there's a very big emphasis on personal faith. And I would suggest to you this morning that while we all do have a personal faith journey that we're walking out, that journey is meant to be walked out in the context of community. Right in the beginning of creation, when God is creating everything, he's saying that it's good. You know, he sets light out. He's like, hey, that's good. First day. Goes to the next day, he's like, I'm going to separate the sea from the land. That's good. And he keeps making things in creation, going through these stages of creation. And every time he finishes a stage, he says, that's good. Well, God makes Adam and he puts him there in the garden. He says, hey, Adam, you're going to take care of this garden. You're going to name all these animals. And all these animals go before Adam. And it says this, that God realized that there wasn't anyone suitable for Adam to be a partner. And you know what God says? That's not good. So I just want to frame this in context for you here. Right at the beginning, when Adam was in perfect relationship with God, doing the will of his father on earth, no sin in the way, God still says it's not good for man to be alone. We require community like we require oxygen. It is a need on the inside of us that we cannot get away from. We are not made to do life alone. We actually need people. It's why solitary confinement in prisons is such a cruel and unusual thing to do to people. It's very difficult for them mentally because you're not meant to be alone. So when we're talking about our faith and we're like, oh, it's just my faith, my way, the way that I do it. I have my own personal faith. And sometimes I come into a room with other people, but this is my time to worship Jesus my way. And I don't like that song, so I'm not going to lift my hands. You see where I'm going with this? That's not the way that God designed it to be. It is meant to be done in the context of relationship. Even if you were in a perfect relationship with God. Even if you are crushing it on the spiritual disciplines, you're crushing it in your maturity with God, you still need community. How do I know this? Not only did Adam need community, but if we look at Jesus, remember fully man and fully human, or fully man and fully God at the same time, outworking the will of his Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit. He's in perfect relationship with God, living this sinless life, and he still engages with community. Check this out in Luke 4, verse 16. It says, he went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue. So Jesus is going to, to church, basically. This is the Jewish gathering of believers on the Sabbath. They're gonna read the scripture together. They're gonna pray together and worship God together. Does that sound familiar? As, he, as was his custom. 
A couple weeks ago, we talked about how it was custom to go away and pray by himself. We talked about how it was custom to engage with the Bible. But what we can sometimes do is we're like, well, I do, do I really need church? Do I re- like, does it say anywhere that to be a Christian, you got to come to church? Well, I would suggest to you this. If we look at the model of our Lord and our Savior, he models for us as a man what he expects as Lord. So if Jesus was doing it, you better believe that you should do it too. If not from a place of obligation, from a place of wisdom. Guys, we are made for relationship with each other. We need to engage with community together. Jesus does this on multiple occasions. Matthew 9, 35, he's going through all the cities and synagogues teaching, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Mark 6, 2, says on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. John 18, 19, the high priests are questioning Jesus as he's speaking, where is he? The synagogue. Luke 4, 42, people are coming to Jesus and they want him to teach. And Jesus says, yeah, but I need to go to all these other synagogues as well. I need to be in community. I need to share it with people. Not to mention that Jesus had with him at all times 12 young disciples, except for the times that he was retreating to pray. He had 12 young disciples with him all the time, outworking their following Jesus together. Jesus models for us as a man what he expects as Lord. And the writer of Hebrews in this verse is is saying, guys, this is what we need to do. We need to learn how to motivate each other to do the good works, to be like Jesus, and we need to gather together. Don't neglect that as some people are doing. They're making it their own faith journey. They're making it like, well, I accepted Jesus, so I'm good. So do I really need church? And what the writers of Hebrews are saying is, yes, you do. Why? Why do we need church? Outside of the fact that Jesus models for it, which is a good enough reason in and of itself. But if you're like, yeah, but why? Why does Jesus model it for us? What's What's the rationale for me? The reason is because of this. Optional things becomes obsolete. What you make optional will eventually become obsolete. What you treat as optional will eventually become unnecessary in your life. Like, do I really need to show up at 10 a.m. and engage in worship together? Or can I just rock up mid-third song because worship is optional? You know, do I really need to sing with the other saints, responding to God for who he is and what he's done? Why am I not feeling the same kind of engagement in worship that I think other people are? Lack of connection might result in lack of fruit. Do I really need to talk to people before or after the service? I mean, like, I got some preaching in me, so, like, I'm good, right? And then we ask the question, like, why don't I feel connected? Why don't I feel like people in this church talk to me? Well, because you show up 15 minutes late and then you leave immediately and don't speak to anyone. But that's fine. That's fine. And I'm not trying to dig on anyone. What I'm saying is this, that what you make optional will become obsolete. So if you see the first three songs in the service as optional, yeah, you're going to go get a Starbucks first. Another way that we could say that is this, you, what you prioritize will propagate. What you put your emphasis and your time and your effort into is the thing that you're going to reap in your life. So if you're like, man, clean house, that is a huge priority for me. Your house is probably going to be clean. 
right? If you're like, education, that's a huge priority for me. Yeah, that's probably going to be clean. Recreational activities in the community, that's probably going to be something that you're producing in your life. It's going to propagate in your life. And what I'm inviting you to, what the writer of Hebrews is inviting us to here, is simply this, prioritize gathering together. Because what you treat as optional eventually becomes obsolete. Parents who treat the church as optional should not be surprised when, they end, when their children end up treating Jesus as unnecessary. And, and here's what I'm, what I'm going to say to you. The church in and of itself is not the 10 a.m. service. The church is not small groups. The church is not the worship time at the beginning of the service. The church is what happens when believers agree together to engage in community. We're the church right now. If you weren't here, this would not be church. It would be Matt Leto standing on a stage with a microphone talking to an empty room. Not church. It's not a service that makes church. It's the believers coming together and joining up with the trellis and growing up in it to produce fruit. That's what the church is. Community, when it's truly understood, is not distinct from church. Christian community, common unity together, is the same thing as church. Because what is church? Well, if you were to look at that Greek word, it's the word ecclesia. And that's two Greek words, ek and kaleo. The first Greek word, ek, means to be called out. And kaleo means to be called in. So one way that we can understand what church actually means, anytime you read the word church in the New Testament, because that's an English word, it came about much later, what it's saying is those who were called out and came together prayed. When it says the church prayed for Paul, it said those who were called out and gathered together prayed for Paul. When it says that the church grew and multiplied, it's saying those who were called out and then came together, multiplied. What we are called to be, church, is those who are called out of our homes, out of solitude, out of individualism, and come together in community in order to build each other up and encourage each other into Christ-likeness. This is what the writer of Hebrews is saying when he says, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. He's saying, hey, you, who are called out and called in, called out of your homes, called out of the world, called into Jesus and called into community together. Figure out ways to encourage each other and motivate each other to be like Jesus. And motivation, I think, really comes down to three areas. There's direction, correction, and protection. Any good coach who is trying to motivate you to become a better player in any sport will tell you they'll direct you in what to do. A good coach doesn't go, yeah, you're, you're figuring it out. Good job. A good coach isn't like, swing the bat the way you want to swing the bat. Just feel it out. Like a good imagine what it would be like. Actually, this must be what's happening with Toronto sports. Maybe we have these kind of coaches. I think this is what's happening, guys. This explains everything. I'm just having a moment here up on stage. But here's the reality is that a good coach doesn't just let you figure it out on your own. They give correction. Or sorry, they give direction. 
And when you try to do the direction, like, guys, I'm not good at baseball. My baseball swing is super awkward because I'm not flexible. So when I go to swing, right, I try to do the Josh Donaldson leg lift and everything like that. I try to, like, have the bat nice and high. And then I try to, like, swing through. But it just, it looks like a deer trying to walk for the first time. It's so awkward. And here's the thing. I've had all the direction from the coach, right? Like, I, I know the instructions, but sometimes while I'm trying to do the instructions, I make mistakes. And in that case, the coach comes in and goes, okay, just try to loosen up. Just try to shake it off. And I'm like, and he's like, no, loose, like loose. And I'm like, I am. He's like, okay, we got to work on this first. They come in and correct what you're doing wrong because they gave you good directions, but sometimes we can't implement the directions. Does that make sense? So they correct you. And sometimes in our culture, we think correction is like hatred, right? Like, oh, they don't like me because they told me I was doing something wrong. But in church community, correction is actually a sign of love. Because if Jesus came to give us life and life abundant, and he gave us directions on how to get there, and we're not doing it properly, what that means is that we are not actually outworking the abundant life that God gave us. So correction is a loving brother or sister in Christ coming along and say, hey, you're missing it. Let's, let's work it out together. That's what correction is. And protection is any good coach will be like, hey, are you about, I, I was talking to this boy this weekend at this conference that I was speaking at, and he was like, man, I fractured three vertebrae. And I was like, whoa, how did you do that? He was like, I was trying to deadlift 300 pounds. And I was like, how old are you? He's like 16. And I was like, right. Here's the thing. If he had a coach, what would that coach have said? Don't do that. You're going to hurt yourself. Because a good coach will also protect They'll say, these things are going to hurt you, so don't do them. And when it comes to our, our faith walk, community directs. It directs us to become more like Jesus. When we come together, when we read the Bible, what we're hearing on a weekly basis is, this is how you be with Jesus, you become like Jesus, and then you go do the stuff that Jesus did. This is how you get in the will of the Father and empowered by the Holy Spirit to go do it. There's direction that we give. You know, the funny thing about that trellis when I stuck it in the ground is the tomato plant, when it made connection and contact with it, all of a sudden it knew where it needed to grow. It followed that trellis up. I've seen these pictures of these trellis wires that are, that are kind of like, you know, wavy and they go up and everything like that, mostly with peas. You know, for a guy who doesn't like gardening, I certainly look at a lot of pictures of gardening. <laughs> But here's the thing is that the organic thing that's growing up follows the direction of the structure that's put around it. And here's the thing. It's not meant to just follow that structure, but it's a good starting point. And then what happens later in the season is you see that plant start to flower and start to grow. And all of a sudden the produce comes out, even outside of the structure. Church. The 10 a.m. service is not what makes church church. You being here in order to submit ourselves to the direction of Jesus and each other as believers, to say, hey, I love you. I want to motivate you. I want to encourage you. You're growing. You're doing so great. That's like the trellis that is helping us grow up. 
And organically, our faith with God, which is a personal thing in its own way, comes into that structure and follows that structure. And I believe that when we do that, that's when we start to see fruit even beyond the 10 a.m. on Sunday. Jesus with his disciples was not like, good job today, boys. See you next week. We'll have a little pre-service meeting. Get on the same page about my healings that I'm going to do. No, he was like, good job, boys. Let's go. And you can imagine that as they're walking, remember, they walked everywhere. As they're talking, you have a tax collector and a zealot who probably don't love each other. And Jesus is like, hey, guys, love each other. Keep walking together. Figure it out together. You're doing great. And when they would make a mistake, he's like, oh, here's the direction I want you to go. Here's what I want you to do. Here's how I want you to pray. Community directs. And what does it direct us to? It directs us into Christ-likeness. Gathering together, like the writer of Hebrews is saying, motivates us to become Christ-like. That's what we're doing here. And it's not possible outside of community. Because the greatest marker of Christ-likeness is love. Love for each other. Love for our enemy. Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Do you know how impossible it is to become a person of love just in your own little spiritual discipline? We need other people to become people of love. Love, when properly understood, means to put the good of another ahead of your own self. You can't do that if you're just living out your faith by yourself. We need community to be able to become like Jesus. Another thing that community does is it corrects. Community corrects. Proverbs 27, 17, if you've been around church, you've probably heard this verse. It says this, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. That's like the, the penultimate, like that is the, the zenith men's conference verse, right? Because we're like, yeah, iron. Yeah, sharpening. Sounds like knives, right? It's a thing. But here's this thing. What, what, the, what the writer is saying in this verse is that you're rubbing against each other and knocking off the excess burrs that make something dull. I just want to put this out there. I'm sure that to a piece of steel, if it had nerve endings and feelings, it would be like, ah, ow, that hurts. I don't enjoy that. And sometimes we're like, man, you know what I love? I love Jesus. You know what I have a hard time with? It's church people. Do you know what I'm saying? I would follow Jesus if it wasn't for all those other Christians that I don't like, that I don't get along with. But here's the thing. We're the ecclesia. Those who are called out from the world and called into community together. And if Jesus is calling us into community together, maybe that means that my burrs and your burrs need to come together to knock some stuff off and become absolute weapons for God's kingdom. You see, God doesn't want to just have us become Christians so that we can have our own faith. Absolutely. Personally, he wants you to experience salvation here and now, but he also wants to use you. And church, I got to say, a dull weapon going into battle is never a good idea. And the reality is that we are in the middle of a battle, not against people. We're very clearly told in scripture against flesh and, not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. 
There is a city outside of this church that desperately needs to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And if we were to take a real moment of honesty, how sharp do you feel to go out into that mission field? Because pretty often I've heard this, well, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a preacher. No, 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 your job is to help me in my faith and then I just go Monday to Friday, Saturday I hang out and then Sunday I come back in. But what if God wants to use us as sharp weapons for his kingdom to go out and reach the lost? It needs to be in the context of community that we're getting sharpened in our faith because community corrects us. Sometimes we step out and we do something wrong and in love someone can go, hey, that's not the way we need to do that. You know, the funny thing about my garden is that the tomato plant that was up on the trellis, it was really easy to spot the weeds. Like, I didn't, I didn't say I pulled out those weeds, but I, I, they were easy to spot, right? It was easy to get under there and kind of just pull them out. Oh, dandelions, what are you doing, right? But the plants that were growing on the ground that didn't have the trellis, that weren't connected to the structure, that weren't actually, you know, being lifted up, they were in the soil, in the dirt. The weeds had started growing around them and tangling so that when I tried to pull the weeds out, it actually started hurting the plant. And sometimes when you get corrected in church, you're like, ow, that's hurting me. I'm being abused, that's church abuse. But sometimes it's because there's a weed, a lie of Satan that you have believed, which is causing you to have incorrect belief that needs to be brought back under the will of the Father and empowered by the Holy Spirit into the likeness of Jesus. And sometimes maybe the reason it hurts is because it's like, are we really connected to the trellis? Are we up out of the soil or have we allowed ourselves to kind of get caught up in all the weeds? See, the beauty of community is that it's not like we're coming in and just like ripping on each other. M is not like being mean to me as my wife, but she knows more flaws than all of you. The way she brings correction is out of love. And the reason is because of this, you can see how this works. Correction ends up leading to protection. The correction of community is not about conforming to a certain way of doing things. If you think that we want you in church being transformed so that we can have more people who wear skinny jeans and blundstones with comb-overs and they always wear jackets no matter the season, if you think we're just trying to make a bunch of Mike Miller, Nancy Miller, Matt Leto, Emily Leto clones, no one can clone you, so I didn't add you on the list. You're unique, bro. So tall. Here's the thing, guys. We're not trying to make anyone in our image. It's not about conformity and unity in, or uniformity in that way. The way that we do things is modeled after the way of Jesus, and it's about protecting us from falling into sin and error and the hands of the enemy. You see, Jesus triumphed over the rulers and authorities of, of the dark world. Jesus embarrassed Satan when he died on the cross and rose from the grave. And sometimes we as believers are like, thank you so much for that, Jesus. Anyways, I'm just gonna go right back to the thing that had me in bondage, because God will forgive me. But when we commit to community, when we say, I'm actually gonna be here, I'm gonna sow into this, I'm gonna go into that trellis and connect with it so that I can bear fruit. 
It actually keeps us safe from a lot of the nonsense that Satan wants to bring you down with. John 10.10 says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Why? Because he doesn't want you to produce fruit. He wants you to get stuck down in the weeds, finding some DIY deconstruction Instagram account that explains all the hard things about the Bible that you've never understood in a way that makes you say, I don't need to believe those anymore. He wants you to be absolutely dull walking onto the battlefield so that when someone has a question about God or says, yeah, but what about the hard things in the world? You're like, ah, I got nothing. To the point where you won't even try anymore. He doesn't want you to be directed into Christ-likeness because he is terrified of you. So if he can get you to believe a lie that church is not a priority and it does not matter and you don't need to show up on time and it doesn't matter anyway, then he's already winning a significant part of the Bible. So church, here's the invitation that we're gonna go from here. Make church a priority because what you prioritize will propagate. Plug into the trellis of community. Look people in the eye in the lobby. Ask their story. Another part of protection is that we as believers get to pray for each other and lift each other up and motivate each other into Christ's likeness. Let's commit to that. Let's commit to actually connecting into what God is doing. In the way that our Lord asks for it as the Lord, he modeled it as a person and we need to engage with it the same way. I would encourage you, if you're not part of a small group, find a small group. If, you're, if all the Nova groups are full, be like, hey, all the Nova groups are full you wanna just read the Bible together with a couple of other people. Because again, the structure of the church is there to help promote organic growth. It doesn't need to stay in the confines of a Nova small group or a 10 a.m. service. It's meant to go beyond that. But maybe as a starting point, I would just encourage you, make church a priority. Don't forsake gathering together. And I would also say this, make worship a priority. When we come in through those doors and we sing these songs, do you know what we're doing? We are speaking the truth of who God is and what he has done over each other and over our city. It's not Christian karaoke. It's a powerful spiritual discipline that is shooting a shot across the bow of the enemy saying, we're coming for you. It's a prophetic witness over our city. So I would encourage you, show up 10 minutes early for church, grab a coffee, look someone in the eyes, and get in here and join in unity, declaring who Jesus is and what he's done. Once the preaching's over, once we head out those doors, look someone in the eye, have a conversation, allow the organic growth of your faith to go beyond the structure of the trellis. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna sing again. Would you stand to your feet? And let's put into practice what I just challenged you on. Let's stand in unity, declaring the truth of God and what he's done. Come on, let's sing it out.